time for The Outspoken Cyclist, the weekly conversation about cycles, cyclists, travel, trails, advocacy, the bike industry, and much, much more. WJCU broadcasts and streams The Outspoken Cyclist on-air show at 8 a.m. every Saturday morning. In Northeast Ohio, tune in to 88.7 FM, or worldwide, listen in at wjcu.org. Our weekly podcast is available at the close of the on-air show at OutspokenCyclist.com or download it with your favorite podcatching app to listen anytime. Now here's your host, Diane Jenks. Hello, welcome to the Outspoken Cyclist. I'm your host, Diane Jenks. This is our show for November 14th, 2020. With only a few weeks until the holidays, that's Thanksgiving, Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, and finally New Year's, I thought a little good news might be in order. As many of you know, I'm an advisory board member to the East Coast Greenway, and when something exciting happens with the organization, I like to share it with you. One of the best things about the Greenway is its commitment to the environment knowing that infrastructure that expands walking, biking, and other outdoor activities is really good for all of us. So this coming Monday, November 17th, the first in the Impact Series, a conversation about climate, will take place between my guest, the East Coast Greenway's Executive Director, Dennis Marcato Soriano, and Dr. Michael Oppenheimer, who is also an East Coast Greenway Advisory Board member. Then after the break, we'll head to Minnesota for a chat with my friend Chuck Marone. I always love speaking with Chuck. He's the founder of Strong Towns, and I learn something new every time we talk. Today is no exception as we discuss a specific traffic situation that led to a young boy's untimely death, as well as exploring the self-defeating decisions that are made by cities and towns when they try to turn a road and a wealth-creating area into what Chuck has coined the Strode. And because this conversation happened in advance of the presidential election, I posed a question to Chuck about infrastructure in a post-election world. It's an interesting answer. Lastly, my second in a three-part series with Bicycling Magazine's test director, Lou Mazzante, focuses on high-tech gift items this week. With the necessity to stay in and stay away from others, We discuss the entertaining as well as training assistance of the Wahoo Kicker Indoor Trainer, the fun of the new GoPro camera, and a new 3D printed saddle from Physique. We also talk about the whoop strap, something I knew nothing about until I talked to Lou. So mark your calendar for this coming Monday, November 17th. Head to greenway.org and listen in on a conversation between the Greenway's executive director, Dennis Marcato Soriano, and Dr. Michael Oppenheimer. Professor Oppenheimer is one very important person on the climate front. He is the Albert G. Milbank Professor of Geosciences and International Affairs in the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs, the Department of Geosciences, and the Princeton Environmental Institute at Princeton University. Here is Dennis to tell us more how the East Coast Greenway, Dr. Oppenheimer, and climate all come together for an improved climate outcome. Hello, Dennis. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. I hope you and your family are well. Thank you, Diane. Uh, You as well. Luckily, we're good. We're pretty good here. Yeah. Well, when you stay at home and don't do anything but Zoom meetings, you tend to be okay. So I wanted to talk with you about some upcoming events that are coming up with the East Coast Greenway, the Impact Series. You sent me a message about it. It's very interesting. Let's start with an overview of the series because it's coming up really fast. Absolutely. This coming Monday, we're going to have the kickoff in this impact series. And what that is, is a focus on climate. What is the impact that the East Coast Greenway is making with regards to the climate? And how are we saving the earth by biking and walking and establishing safe space for people to do so? We're going to have one of our advisory board members, And one of my mentors, Michael Oppenheimer, he's a lead author of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's a Princeton professor. And 
he knows his stuff on climate. So he's going to give us a fresh perspective, new insight, and help uh, guide us on this path toward addressing the climate challenge. So is this impact series available to anybody who wants to see it? Are you going to stream it live? Are you recording it? Yes, we're streaming it live and it's open, free, accessible to everyone. So we'd love to have all of your listeners join us. Um, It'll be a great way to get to know the East Coast Greenway and what we're really doing to make an impact on the key issues of the day, whether it's addressing our public health crisis or it's addressing the climate change crisis. We're really focused on dealing with these tough topics and having fun while we do it, getting out on two wheels, exploring America and learning from new people, getting people together, bridging the divides in this country. Let me reintroduce you. We're speaking with Dennis Marcato Soriano. He is the executive director of the East Coast Greenway. And the disclaimer, of course, is I am one of the advisory board members. Very proud to be so. Love checking in with him and finding out what's going on. Let's talk real quickly about the second and third from the Impact Series. I know it's December 2nd and 8th. We're going to talk North and South. Tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll tell people how they can actually get these impact series conversations in their own ears. Absolutely. So after we talk about climate change and the impact we're making on that and our vision for the future, we're going to talk about how is the East Coast Greenway developing? We're going to have our regional coordinators who are on the ground up in New England, all the way down to Florida, and they're going to give you stories of impact, stories of new segments of the East Coast Greenway that will inspire people to get out and ride and enjoy these amazing new sections. I want to tell you uh, something big happened this year for the East Coast Greenway. We became the most visited park in America. Really? Yes. The COVID crisis, people are flocking to get outdoors. It's the only safe place for us to be and to actually spend some time with other people you know, in a safe way. And so we have 50 million bike rides, runs, and walks that we project by the end of this year, passing Central Park in New York as the most visited park. That's amazing. It is. And it's not the end. It's just the tip of the iceberg, Diane. With great members of our advisory board like you and with all the supporters that we have, the amazing staff, the senior volunteers like you spoke with, Larry Silver, our board chair, There's so many great people and we're getting it done. We've completed now over a thousand miles of Greenway between Maine and Florida. And they're getting so many great visits. And what that means is we're lowering the carbon footprint of people getting around. We're changing the way people move in their communities. And right now, this is such a challenge. People want to get outside. They want to get out on the Greenway. They need that safe space to lock in the gains that we've made in cycling across the country. So we've got to invest more. This is outspoken cyclists, so I'm going to be a little outspoken here. Be my guest. Biking and walking trips in the United States make up over 10%, around 12% of all trips around the country. And yet we get crumbs from our departments of transportation. I'm talking 1% to 2% of federal funding for transportation goes to safe biking and walking. Right. It's not good enough. We've got over 7,000 people dying every year right now. That's the pace. People that are biking and walking and get hit by a car. So we've got to invest in safer communities. We've got to invest in a more climate-friendly future. And that's why, you know, I'm proud that when President-elect Biden gave his victory speech last Saturday, it was right next to the East Coast Greenway in Wilmington, Delaware. And we want to work with President-elect Biden. We want to work with everyone in Congress to get this done. We're calling it Greenway Stimulus. $10 billion in a visionary way, we can transform the cycling experience in all 50 states. It's really not that much money compared to the trillions of dollars that we're spending as a country right now. And we need to, to recover. We need economic stimulus. We've got to do it in the right way. We can't just spend money on the same old of the past that got us sick. It has us this system where we're we're not safe enough to ride 
you know, and have fun. We've got to invest in the right places. And that's in greenways and trails as a significant part of it. And so that's what we're focused on. And we think the East Coast Greenway should be a mega project for the United States. The Blue Ridge Parkway is one of those beautiful places in America. And it was built in the 1930s when people needed jobs. The East Coast Greenway and building greenways and trails and bike pad infrastructure actually creates and supports 50% more jobs than building highways. So let's stop spending money on expanding more and more highways and airports and big things like that. Let's focus on the big projects that produce and support more jobs. And that's safe biking and walking projects, Greenway Stimulus. All right, Dennis, tell my listeners how they can get ready to hear Michael Oppenheimer. I assume it's Dr. Oppenheimer. It is, Professor Dr. Oppenheimer. On Monday, which is coming up, that's the 17th, what time and how can people find out? And then we'll also make sure they know about the 2nd and the 8th to hear about the expansion of the north and south of the Greenway. Absolutely. It's at noon on Monday, and we'd love to have everyone there. And the web address, just go to our website, greenway.org, and you can find it. It's slash impact series. You can sign up, you get on the email list, and you will get all the information to get on that webinar. Perfect. Well, Dennis, it's always wonderful to talk with you and to catch up. We've been speaking with Dennis Marcato Soriano. He is the executive director of the East Coast Greenway. We will post all of this and get people to listen. Thanks so much. Well, thank you. And I want to mention we have on sale some awesome East Coast Greenway masks. People need their masks these days. They're beautiful and they're at a nice price. Also, equities are at record highs. We have donors right now who are giving like Apple stock. They're trying to help make sure that the East Coast Greenway and other organizations around the country are thriving. We would love to put people's resources, turn them into impact for the East Coast Greenway and for Greenways all across the country. All right. Have a great holiday. We'll talk soon. Thank you. You too. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. If you would like to join Dennis and Michael Oppenheimer for this conversation, learn more about Dr. Oppenheimer's work via a recent presentation from CPEC's Smart Growth Summit 2020, or make a donation to the Greenway and the work it's doing, you can log on to greenway.org. We're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll speak with Chuck Marone from Strong Towns. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. The Outspoken Cyclist is proud to have Bike Law as a trusted partner. If you find yourself in need of legal advice or assistance as it pertains to any cycling issue, log on to bikelaw.com. I'm Diane Jenks. This is The Outspoken Cyclist. When we think about cyclists who are hit and sadly injured or worse, we usually look to the driver of the vehicle and rarely the environment in which the crash occurred, other than to say someone crossed a double yellow line or veered into the oncoming lane. But poorly imagined and implemented street design is actually a leading cause of injuries and fatalities, and not enough people are talking about that. But Strong Town's Chuck Marone thinks about it and talks about it. Listen in. Hello, Chuck. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. It's always good to talk with you, and happy Halloween. Hey, happy Halloween to you. It's, it is always nice to be back. So well, Halloween you. happens to be a really uh, different day for me. It happens to be my birthday. <laughs> oh, congratulations. Happy birthday. It's it's always been an interesting birthday since I was a little girl, yeah, that'd be exciting. No, actually, it was kind of like depressing because you know how little <laughs> how kids are. They they tease yeah. you. Oh, you're a witch. You're a go. Yeah, whatever. 
But anyway, let's move on. So uh, there are a lot of topics we've talked about over the past few years, and you wrote a couple of articles. One was about ending road fatalities, which a lot of people have these Vision Zero programs, and the other is statistically inevitable outcome, which is just a really kind of a sad story. So why don't you uh, sort of expound on those on that topic for me. Well, I'll start with the inevitable outcome one. I, I think it's important to understand that most traffic fatalities, most you know, tra- traffic, even collisions or crashes that we experience are actually random. They happen uh, in, in a random kind of environment at, at random times. It, it isn't something where you can project it out. Uh, and say, you know, th- this is a dangerous intersection, there will be a crash here. Of course, we all know places that, that feel more dangerous than others. Um, but the reality is, is even our measures to go out and fight situations that have uh, high incidence rates, uh, oftentimes you're only displacing those incidences. You're, you're, you're not actually addressing uh, something that ultimately, from a statistics standpoint, is fairly random. If you if you understand this, if you grasp this, what what you can start to realize is that it is a matter of, uh, in a sense, probability and outcomes. If you think of playing Russian roulette, you can spin the spin the uh, cylinder on the the revolver, and you've got a one out of six chance, and you can do that for a long time and be okay. It, it doesn't actually, because things are okay, hide the underlying danger. You also can be very unlucky playing Russian roulette. And that doesn't necessarily change the odds all that much. When it comes to traffic safety, what we recognize is that when we create environments that have all the kind of Russian roulette elements of danger, even if we don't experience some type of bad situation, that doesn't make the environment safe. We actually have to deal with that underlying design issue in order to get the outcomes that we want. When I look at that particular crash that's described in that article, there was a lot of people there locally who, you know, looked at it as just a random bad event. You know, just this is a very sad thing. This boy was walking across traffic, got hit by a garbage truck. Uh, What a tragedy. And I think it's important to understand that, yes, while it's a tragedy, it's actually closer to Russian roulette kind of tragedy than a, than a random occurrence. The, the situation was in place for that vehicle to quickly go through the intersection. Uh, it was designed in such a way where they would not see the, the, the young boy. Uh, and, and it was only a matter of time, a matter of iterations, a matter of spins of the, uh, of the cylinder, so to speak, where this kind of crash is going to happen. I, I think it's important for us to grasp that about the system because uh, we have designed transportation systems just inherently to be dangerous. And I think sometimes we don't fully grasp the randomness of it all. That brings a couple of things up for me. First, let me remind listeners, we're speaking with Chuck Marone. We talk to him several times a year just to catch up with his thinking because it's always important and present. Like right now, this is what we need to think about. And I I do believe that. What are some of the issues that make a specific intersection more dangerous? What kinds of things are planners not thinking about as opposed to what they're actually coming up with? I think when we look at a particular intersection like the one in that article, uh, I think our gut reaction as designers is to create a lot of extra room for traffic movement. In some instances, that makes a lot of sense. And one of the interesting insights from the uh, open space or the, uh, the shared space kind of concept is that when you make it more open, people will behave differently. Uh, they'll actually be more uh, humane, even if they are in a vehicle. The problem in intersections like this one is, uh, unlike the shared space concept where you slow vehicles down when they're entering and essentially constrict their operation so that but by the time they're entering this more open space of the intersection, they're traveling at safe speeds. Uh, this particular intersection did the opposite. Uh, it had a highway design width of lanes coming into it. It had a uh, clear zone uh, enhancements so that you know the driver 
in a sense, had a false sense of security that, you know, this place is wide open and there's nothing to worry about. And the timing of the lights uh, made it so that there was a certain sense of urgency when the lane was yours to seize that, uh, to, you know, to be aggressive in getting, you know, your time and your place and, and using it and not deferring to others. It's interesting because these things all go together, right? I think some people focus on intersection design, and, and this is one of the the downsides of traffic engineering really is that the people who design intersections uh, are often not designing the approaches to the intersections. Uh, the people who design the approaches, uh, you know, the, the, the main line streets or what have you, are not dealing with the intersection design itself. Um, these two are intrinsically related because an intersection is the most dangerous part of any street system. And in order to make it safe, what we need to do uh, you know, to reduce the probability of those negative outcomes is just reduce the speeds. I mean, slow people down when they're entering in so that they can make uh, better decisions and have more time to do it. And if they make bad decisions, the ramifications of them aren't as serious. If we want to slow people coming down, coming into an intersection, besides saying things like uh, spe- speed reduced ahead, so you'll see a sign and it'll say, it's going from 40 to say 25 or from 55 to 35. Uh, what other things could you do to slow it down besides put up a sign? Well, let's point out, first of all, that signs are completely ineffective. Right. <laughs> I agree. You know, saying this is a 25 mile an hour intersection really does nothing. And it, it's important to understand why, because Oftentimes we get mad at drivers for, for not responding to the signs the way that they're up, as, as if drivers, you know, go around reading signs all the time. Driving is a very passive activity. It's designed to be that way. Uh, your brain is not actively engaged in a system one kind of sense. Look at Kahneman and Tversky's work. Uh, it's not actively engaged. It, it can't be. You know, people who are actively engaged like that, those people are fighter pilots and, you know, race car drivers. The the normal human brain can't stay on uh, at that intense rate all the time. And so signs become completely ineffective. You know, we might see it if it's an intersection we go through regularly. We might see it the first or second time we go through. We might make note of it. We might develop habits around it. But the reality is, is that most people drive the speed they feel comfortable with. That is a psychological insight that traffic engineers intuitively understand, and and signs don't do anything about that. So if you want to appeal to someone's passive brain, what you have to do is you actually have to change the environment to jar them into a more active brain kind of mindset. So if you have 12-foot lanes, which is what that particular intersection we're talking about had, coming in, you have to actually decrease that lane width. You have to tighten up the... Uh, approach so that people feel a, a sense of danger driving that they're going to hit something. This doesn't have to be, you know, something very physical. Like you don't have to put a wall and, and have it go close. Although I've seen a number of shared space intersections that are designed fantastically where they use curbs and have the, essentially the curve come in on the side of the street and tighten up so that the, the, the driver will slow down to avoid hitting that side of the curb. It can be things like, you know, lowering lane widths, uh, putting in street trees, uh, adding on-street parking where there is none. Uh, basically, anything we can do to create side friction while you're entering into a situation like this will tend to slow traffic down. Let's talk about the streets themselves for a moment and infrastructure for your vulnerable road user such as a cyclist or a pedestrian, how would that impact an intersection like the one that that this uh, garbage truck went through? If there were a, a, an off path, but it was next to the road, would that have made a difference? Let's talk about that, because I, I, I know that there is debate in the cycling world on, on what is the best kind of infrastructure. When, when we look you know, at places where we have high-speed motor vehicles, uh, to me, anything traveling over the speed of a, a cyclist, you know, anything, anything traveling over 15 miles an hour, to me, is a threat to a cyclist. And so if we are going to design for 
automobiles to travel greater than 15 miles an hour, and we expect cyclists to be in that place, they need to have separate lanes. And they need to be physically separated. I mean, you can't just have a, a stripe and say that's a, that's a separate lane because, you know, you are, again, going to be inducing people to drive at speeds that are higher than what would be safe. And, you know, you, you can't do that right next to someone on a bike. I mean, it, things happen. And again, going back to that original insight about probability, when you repeat these dangerous events over and over and over and over, uh, where they happen becomes random, but their actual outcome becomes statistically inevitable. I mean, that, that's the whole point here. So the idea is to reduce the statistical inevitability of it. When I look at an intersection like this one, what I want to do is I actually want the cyclists out in the traffic stream them because this is a this is a street uh, it should be a narrow street it should be a street full of life and, and full of shops and people living and people recreating and people moving around in that kind of a complex environment what I want is I want the bikes I want people cycling out in the traffic stream and that means that traffic stream has to be at 10 to 15 miles an hour. It, it can't be faster than that. 10 to 15 miles an hour is actually a, a really good pace for a city street. I mean, you can get a long ways pretty quickly. The reality is we design them for 40, 50 miles an hour. Uh, we put up signs saying you can only go 30 or 25. And in that kind of a design framework, you just can't safely cycle. We're talking with Chuck Marone. He's the founder of Strong Towns. We talk with him periodically and always find the conversation fascinating. We're going to take a real quick break and we'll be right back to talk with Chuck some more. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist. You're listening to the station that is your home for college radio in Cleveland. 88.7 FM, WJCU, University Heights. back on the outspoken cyclist if you're just joining me we're speaking with chuck marone from strong towns so uh when we left off we were talking about what some of the ideas are to calm traffic in dangerous situations and you were saying that anything over 12 to 15 miles an hour is probably all it needs to be in a city so what ha or in you know an urban area so we live very close to a, what I would call a major east-west street. It's five lanes, two in each direction, plus a turning lane. And I've been trying to convince people that we don't need five lanes on this street. So I'm wondering what some of the tools that you offer are that a city planner or transportation or a city like Little South Euclid here in Ohio might take to look at and make some changes to, because it'll, it'll help businesses too. And that's one of the things people don't seem to think when you buzz by a business at 25 or 30 miles an hour, you're not seeing it. You're not stopping to shop there. Right. What we are really trying to do at Strong Towns in our messaging, uh, you know, in, in putting together uh, the articles and, and the podcasts and all the different things that we do we're trying to help shift people's thinking. A lot of times when you have those five lane strodes and a strode is what we call it, is a, a term that we coined a street road hybrid, a street being a, a platform for building wealth, a place, and a road being you know, the connection between places. The five lane is trying to do both of those. It's trying to move traffic quickly. It's trying to also be a platform for wealth creation and, and building a place. And when we look at those, the, the key insight of a strode is that it fails at both. Um, it actually doesn't move vehicles very quickly, uh, but it also doesn't create much wealth. It, it actually depresses property values and investments. If we can focus on one of those or the other, pick street or road, if it's street, we can focus on wealth by reducing the number of lanes, uh, reducing the speed of traffic, actually creating a place. And in those kind of instances, the congestion 
actually becomes a driver for investment. Uh, Yogi Berra said, you know, nobody goes there anymore because it's too busy. Well, that, that is the key insight of congestion. If you have a lot of traffic congestion, what that means is that a lot of people want to be in this space. Use that uh, congestion to actually drive investment, to drive, uh, you know, investment in that place, to get people to build more, uh, to create more opportunity in that space, increase your tax base and build your wealth. That, that's what congestion does. Congestion is actually a good thing that we shouldn't be trying to fight. If the idea is to make it a road, then uh, all of that development that you're doing, all of that building, all the, the intersections and accesses and all that uh, are detriment to moving vehicles quickly. And, and that's what we need to get rid of. That's what we need to fight. In, in most cities, in most urban spaces, uh, what we have done is we have imposed a theory of highway design onto what really is an urban street. And we're trying to fight congestion when instead we actually should be embracing it and use it to drive uh, good outcomes. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Before we end our conversation today, I want to make sure that listeners can find out more about not only how they can get involved, but how they can get their, their communities involved if they want to see some of these changes, which many of my listeners do. But the last thing I do want to talk about, and I know it's like, ugh, do we really want to talk about it? By the time this show airs, by the way, the election will have been over. So I'd like some pre-election insight from you. And when we look back, we'll see what you thought. What are you thinking in terms of more like transportation and planning? We have not had the infrastructure bill we were promised four years ago. Are you hearing or seeing or thinking anything that might say infrastructure is going to be an important part of the next four years? Uh, no, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> not at all. And it's funny because four years ago, you had Hillary Clinton say, uh, we're going to have a trillion dollar infrastructure bill. And she, you know, as was her kind of deal, had a very detailed plan about how that would be spent and everything that would go on. And then Donald Trump's response was, well, we're going to have a two trillion dollar you know, we're just going to double that. That's what we're going to do. Of course, that's been elusive, right? And we can't really figure this out. And I, I think there's a good reason why we can't figure it out. It's not that there isn't, you know, free spending. It's not that, that the budget deficit or anything like that is the issue. I mean, we've pretty much seen that. It's that there's really no good projects. Uh, there's really not a lot of great projects to do at the federal level. The great projects, the things that need to be done are all local. And they're all small. There's a friend of mine who does lobbying on K Street, and we were having a joke, and he said he would applaud all projects. He thinks the federal government should fund all the ribbon cutting that they want, but all the ribbons can only be four feet in length. Um, that, that would be, if, if we limited ourselves to projects where the ribbon that we were cutting was four feet in length or less, uh, we would be doing amazing projects. Well, those just don't flow through a federal system. And so what, what you have is you have, and, and this kind of goes to, you know, the way I look at national politics in general, what you have is a system that was designed uh, to create the interstate, to reshape an entire continent around uh, suburbanization and suburban theories. And now we're trying to retrofit that to do what really is fine-grained urbanism, fine-grained urban design. And it's just the wrong tool. It's the wrong level of funding, and it's the wrong level of, of discourse. So I, I struggle with our national dialogue. Four years ago, I did a forum with Joe Biden. He was the vice president. I spoke to after him. His whole talk was about how build, 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 I think was his statement, uh, we need to get out and just build more stuff because that's how we create a great America. And I think for his life, that is probably very true. I don't think that will be for the next 70 years. I think the next 70 years is going to be less about, or it needs to be less about the federal government building big transformative projects and more about us filling in the gaps to make better use of those investments and make our cities more livable, more productive, uh, more humane. So does that mean if the federal government becomes involved, what it's doing is sort of supplementing what the states and communities are doing so that we're pooling money to do smaller projects? Does that make sense? 
Not to me. I, w- I would like to see our transportation finance system very localized. And I think one of the places that we, we struggle with that, particularly among cycling activists, is they, they say, well, you know, local governments are stingy. They're, they're not spending money on this stuff. Like, I don't want to have to fight for City Hall. I, I would rather have the state fund this or the federal government fund this because there's lots of money there and we can tap into that. And I think that's true only to the extent that the, the federal government crowds out all other spending. You know, when, when you have a program that will pay for expanding lanes, building interchanges, building frontage roads, what you see is that city halls become very uh, adapted to that. That's what they tend to focus on. That's what their programs do. If city halls actually focused on what builds wealth in their communities, what improves quality of life for people, what pays the bills and, and helps them run and operate the city, uh, we would build nothing but biking and walking infrastructure throughout our core neighborhoods. That, that would be the overwhelming emphasis. So I would like to see a, a, decent, you know, a decentralization of transportation funding. We, we built the interstate. We're done with that. Like, it's, it's over. Let's declare victory and move on. There's no need for all this apparatus that was designed to build the interstates to be kind of repurposed, to continue to build interstates, but then throw a bone to bike advocates now and then by, you know, we'll put a trail over here or a bike lane over there. I want to get serious and aggressive about building good infrastructure. And to me, that's going to happen from the bottom up. Which is the way you think about all of this. And and I I really appreciate the way you think. We've been speaking with Chuck Marone. He does have a new book coming out. And we kind of announced that the last time we talked and it will be out first of the year. Or when do you think? We did. It's exciting. No, I hope. (laughs) (laughs) So... (laughs) I, I'm a little bit embarrassed because I'm I'm always a deliver on time kind of person, uh, but I had a, a series of accidents this summer and, and wound up not being able to write. And so I got an extension on my book. It will come out around the end of August or okay. early September in 2021. Okay. It's called Confessions of a Recovering Engineer. Right. And my due date to the publisher was moved back from October 1st to January 1st to give me some time to finish it up. But uh, yeah, we will definitely talk about it because I think your audience is going to like it a lot. Oh, I think so too. Also, there'll be a free webcast coming up November 17th, how to get rid of parking minimums, which is kind of an interesting topic. Uh, We're not going to go into it right now, but I encourage people if they're interested to go to strongtowns.org and read the journal, uh, check out the events. And by all means, read Chuck's books. Uh, I have them on my shelf. They are, you know, some of my prized transportation books. And I really appreciate you taking time to talk with me today, Chuck. Thanks, Dan. It's always nice to chat with you. All right. You have a wonderful holiday. I don't know. I guess you guys are staying home like everybody else, right? (laughs) Well, you know, we have got snow now. So we're hoping that some of this melts. Yeah, we got like eight or nine inches last week. So... We're hoping that it melts by your birthday so that the uh, the kids feel like they can walk around the neighborhood. Um, uh, yeah. We're working on how to do, our neighborhood is working on how to do Halloween safely because we are the premier destination for Halloween in, uh, in the entire county, really. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see the zip line? No, no. That's an interesting idea. So some guy put together a zip line with a fishing pole, you know, and a rod and reel. And he sent yeah. down a little basket. And in the basket was the candy for each kid. But there were two beers for the parents. <laughs> and then he hauled it back in and refilled it for the next group. I thought it was hilarious. If you go to YouTube yeah, and look good. for Halloween zip line, you'll see it. I thought that was one of the more clever ideas. But, well, Chuck, thank you again. We will talk soon. Thank you. Okay, you take care. Um, Bye-bye. Bye. Chuck Marone is the founder of Strong Towns. If you'd like to become a member, want to hear some of his podcasts, read some of the Strong Towns articles, or learn about how to work toward changing your city to a strong and financially safe and healthy town, you can log on to strongtowns.org. So let's take another short break, and when we come back, we'll speak with Lou Mazzante from Bicycling Magazine. He's got some great gift ideas for you. You're listening to The Outspoken Cyclist.
are back, and this is the Outspoken Cyclist. With less than four weeks to Hanukkah, six weeks until Christmas and Kwanzaa, it's none too soon to be thinking about holiday shopping, especially since you'll probably have to do most of it from home. Bicycling Magazine's test director, Lou Mazzante, is back to talk about some high-tech products for this gift-giving season. Hello, Lou. Welcome back to The Outspoken Cyclist. Here we are, show number two. We're going to do some more gift ideas for the holidays. This time we're talking some techie stuff, maybe a little more expensive than last time. But let's see what you got. How have you been, by the way? I've been great. Thanks for having me back. Super excited to talk about tech. I have some great ideas that I think are really exciting. Uh, and hopefully your readers do too. Or listeners, I'm sorry. I'm so used to talking to to our digital and print audience at Bicycling that I misspoke. So, well, sorry I, I think people nurse. are used to hearing that because apparently a lot of people do that. <laughs> it seems to happen a lot. That's okay. I am not offended. Neither are my listeners. Let's see where we're going to go from here. I'm going to dive right into the product. Probably at the top of everybody's mind are trainers, right? These were already getting really good. Tons of interest with smart training, with apps like Zwift the quality of these things. With COVID, with the winter coming, these things are more popular than ever. And rightfully so, because they're really, really good. Uh, We've tested a ton of them at Bicycling. The latest smart trainers are all phenomenal. The one that we're still recommending for most cyclists is, is the Wahoo Kicker, simply because it has the best combination of features and then usability. It just plugs and play. It pairs up with apps really easy. This latest version, you don't even have to do a spin down to calibrate anymore. It is just a really user-friendly product. Wahoo's great at that, um, and this one is no exception. The latest version also adds these cool little rubber feet and these plastic pods, which you can interchange, which allows you to add a little bit of motion to the trainer, um, up to five degrees which doesn't sound like a lot, and that's by design. Uh, some of the trainers that have motion can actually get a little bit of an unnatural feeling that we found, and, and they don't move the way you would expect them to. So while it's, some people like that better than being kind of locked into a stationary position, the way that Wahoo does it with this one is just allows those little rubber elastomers a little bit of give, so it just gives some some natural feeling to, to the ride, especially when you're standing or you're just kind of bent over your bar and really going for it. Uh, so we love that. Um, quick swap of those little plastic pods allows you to lock it down if you do want something more rigid. So really great update to an already phenomenal product. Uh, I think that's $1,200 available at wahoofitness.com. So let me ask you a real quick question about the Wahoo Kicker. It does not come with one of the Wahoo computers, like the Element or the Bolt. Oh, man, that's a great idea. I wish it did. Wahoo, seems to give us all computers when we buy our trainers. Make us very happy. <laughs> uh, but no, I think that the computers are, are separate. I used it. I did it, unfortunately. Um, some of it was COVID-related and quarantine-related. But in the spring and early summer, I was definitely spending more time on a trainer than I had in previous years. And their Headwind, which is a fan that goes with it, it's not a cheap product. But it's, it does do the job really well of delivering a nice, cool blast of focused air to you when you're riding the trainer. So that's a nice add-on to the Wahoo Kicker. Nice. And then number two? Number two is the GoPro. This has been a phenomenal product for cyclists forever. Obviously, mountain bikers have used these, enjoyed these, capturing really cool POV footage um, of everything from Red Bull Rampage to your backyard trails or family outings. More and more you know, road cyclists want to capture what's happening on the road for, for safety concerns. Hopefully there's no incidents with vehicles. If there are, it's really great to have footage. So we're seeing a lot more interest there too. Uh, the latest GoPro actually shoots in 5K, which is kind of insane. You know, if you're going to download that that footage, you have it. You know, I don't think your most phones will play 5K. You got to stay with 4K, which is still phenomenal. But it's also shooting stills in 20 megapixel if you're in the 5K mode. So you can record a ride and then pull out some really fantastic images from that. This latest version also takes their image stabilization, video stabilization to another level. They call it Hyper Smooth Boost, um, which is a great marketing name for a thing that uh, is an algorithm in the camera 
it actually takes the shake out of it. So if you are riding on a bumpy road or hammering down a mountain bike trail, uh, you get really good quality footage. You don't need a gimbal or anything. It looks pretty pro. And you get a better battery life with this one too. I think it's 30% longer than wow. the previous ones. And you get a full color screen on it. So it makes it really easy to use, set up. Everything's fantastic. Great gift. Uh, 350 bucks. It's gopro.com. That sounds like fun. I know that there are some cameras that are integrated into light systems too mm-hmm. that they use for safety. But I know if you want to have some fun and really record your ride as opposed to traffic, you know, more people again are riding off road on trails or gravel roads or, as you say, mountain bike trails. So, yeah, this sounds like a really fun gift. What, what else do you have in your little arsenal? Ah, got another one here too the whoop strap. This is a fitness tracker, if you have not yet heard of it, slash sleep tracker, data gatherer, personal physician in some ways. It's a strap you wear. Unlike an Apple Watch or some other fitness trackers, there's no screen. It's very hyper-focused on gathering a lot of physiological data and providing that to you so you can make really informed decisions about your health, um, it does things like it certainly measures your sleep. It does a great job of sleep tracking. But it also measures heart rate variability, um, which is a fantastic way to determine whether you're overtrained, whether you get enough rest. Uh, variances in that from day to day and week to week provide a ton of useful data. And it also gives you some respiratory details, which the company is claiming have helped some users do some early determination on possible covid infection so Hmm. there's a lot of benefits to that Um, it's certainly a device that requires some more active use on on your part it's not just passively giving you a lot of of numbers you know it is for people who are who are training or who want to take a real active role and take action on on the data that the thing is providing to you Uh, it's been really popular they signed a big deal with the nfl and the pga i think whoop just got i saw um 100 million dollars investment this week um, with valuation over a billion bucks now. So really popular product, growing. Our test editor, Bobby Lee, who's competed in the Olympics a few times, you know, takes his training seriously, and he is all in on this thing. He loves it and uses it all the time. Do you know if it's waterproof, Lou? I don't know that. Um, I imagine it is water-resistant to some degree, right. but I can certainly find that information. I hate to can this speak here and, and give you... Yeah, no, I think we can find it out. I just thought if you knew off the top of your head that maybe for people who are in the water, you know, because Fitbit makes a uh, a swim tracker, but if you stop moving, it starts over. So you lose your lap count, which is a... Ugh, never mind. That's my argument about these things. So if it works, that, that would be awesome. Yes, I've heard of Whoopstrap. Do you have the website for that? It is whoop.com. W-H-O-O-P. Wow. And and you have a price on that? It is a subscription service, so it's $30 per month. Oh, even better. So that would be kind of a nice a, a nice gift that you would give somebody maybe a three-month subscription. They could renew it. You aren't, aren't locked into it. That's really a good idea. Yes. And uh, thanks to the wonders of high-speed internet, I just confirmed uh, on whoop.com that it is waterproof. It's got an IP rating of, of 68 uh, so it's protected against dust and is water resistant up to 100 feet. Perfect. Yeah. Wow. Very, very cool. All right. One more? One more here is let's go to, which is a really exciting tech that's happening right now. Tons of promise. The Physique Antares Adaptive Saddle. And saddles are so personal. I know. It's hard to recommend them. So I'm recommending this based more on the excitement around the tech because this is 3D printed, which not just Physique is doing, but Specialized is also doing it with its mirror technology. So we're seeing some adoption and some interest in this. Um, Why it's cool is it allows saddle makers like Physique to really tailor the pressure and the support of that saddle in different areas uh, through this intricate 3D printed lattice on there. So you can have a lot of support under your sit bones. You can have some softer areas uh, in the more sensitive part, you know, without the harsh edges that sometimes you get if you're doing different densities of phones and some complicated shapes. So I've used it. Um, It came on a test bike. You know, I've held on to some of them 
to use because I really liked it. It's comfortable, it's supportive, it's ridiculously lightweight. Physique has three versions of this out now um, that are anywhere from $250 to $399. It's, so it's not super cheap, but there's a ton of performance for a nice, comfortable saddle that's really lightweight. Um, and excited to see what happens in 3D printing, especially on saddles. I think there's a lot of promise right there. Very interesting. Once again, we've been talking with Lou Mazzanti. He is the test director for Bicycling Magazine. We got his title right this week. We kind of screwed it up last week. And we will talk with Lou again about apparel in an upcoming show. Thank you so much for doing so much research and giving us so much information for gifts for this holiday season. I know people are on the internet all day, every day, but it's nice to know what we're looking for. We'll list all of this stuff on our Facebook page and uh, we'll talk again next week. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great week. Yeah, well, thanks for having me, Diana. It was great to talk gear with you again. I can't wait to talk a little bit more next week. Have a good one. We'll talk again. Bye-bye. My thanks to Lumazante for his thorough research in finding interesting and highly coveted gifts for the upcoming holidays. We'll have links to them on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. My thanks as always to Chuck Marone from Strong Towns and Dennis Marcato Soriano from the East Coast Greenway. Next week, we'll be back with our third and last segment for the holidays when Lou gives us some gift-giving ideas in the apparel department. We'll also be talking with Barry Bracken from Van Move Cycles about the company's bike hunters. Please remember to rate the show on your favorite podcast app and leave a review if you wish. You can join the conversation on our Facebook page, tweet us at Outspoken Cyclist without the E, or leave a comment on our blog, OutspokenCyclist.com. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great week. Stay safe. Stay well. Wear your mask. And remember, if you have a chance, go for a ride. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us today on The Outspoken Cyclist with Diane Jenks. We hope you enjoyed this week's show and we welcome your thoughts and comments. We'll be back next week with new guests, topics, conversations, and news from the world of cycling. Remember, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and most other podcast apps and never miss an episode. The Outspoken Cyclist is a copyrighted production of DBL Promotions with the assistance of WJCU-FM Cleveland a service of John Carroll University. Thanks again for listening, ride safely, and we'll see you next week.